He's controversial. 20, 30, 40, 50 years from now, he's outspoken. You will tell your kids, and your grandkids, and your great, great grandkids. And he tells it like it is. That you watched a great athlete named the franchise, and he was the greatest world heavyweight champion of all time. He is the franchise Shane Douglas, and you are listening to the Triple Threat Podcast. Prepare to get your ass franchised. here and right now and this is the triple threat podcast episode number 53 of the triple threat podcast to be exact being brought to you today on the two-man power trip of wrestling podcasting platform which you can catch everywhere that you get your podcasts including iHeartRadio, spotify the podomatic app itunes player fm podbean and so many other great outlets if you didn't know by now, my name is Chad, and as always, I'm joined by my tag team partner on the two-man power trip, the one and only John Paz. And on this show, we are joined each and every week by the man who accompanied Francine to the ring every single week on ECW television, the franchise, Shane Douglas. Shane, welcome to episode 53. We're we're in the toddler phase. We, we're just getting our first steps under us. We're walking. A little goo-goo, a little gaga, and we're ready to go for the second big year. Thanks, thanks everybody listening. It's been a lot of fun. Oh, it's been a great ride, and we're coming off a huge episode. But Shane, you completely missed my uh, my gag there. I said the guy no, who no, I, I, heard, I, heard it. I wasn't putting it over. <laughs> Trust me, I got it. it is, uh, but you know, hey, if that's if that's ultimately what's written on my uh, gravestone, I'm fine with that, Francine. Uh, did a fantastic job for uh, for ECW for the wrestling business. Like we said, and I think you saw it quite a bit on the uh, on the Twitter feedback after episode fifty two was that you know the, the and taking nothing away from anybody uh, in the business today, but much of what's going on in the business today segued through ECW and through women like Francine and what they did in ECW. So proud to have called her my partner. Uh, proud to call her the guest last week as well for the one-year anniversary. What an awesome response that we've been experiencing still. Even up to about five hours ago, I got an email from somebody talking about how great the episode was and putting it over, you know, just saying how great it was to hear you two converse and go back and forth. And it's really been since we released it last week, every single day just flooded with a with just overwhelmingly positive response. And there's so many highlights to talk about. But Shane, looking back one week later, I mean, again, just an absolutely fun night for, especially for John and I to just sit here and listen to you two shoot the crap back and forth. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, we were just sort of like rolling on. And I kept thinking to myself, we're going to get JP and Chad in here. Uh, we, uh, it's, uh, it just, you know, we just, but that's how it always is when we're around each other. You know, there's so many stories for us to relive, uh, so many experiences, and so many crazy and stupid and silly things, uh, you know, like being a kid again. You know, you're, you're just sitting there and bouncing these things back and forth. And my biggest takeaway from the episode was, and this sounds crazy, like I'm being trite. Uh, not at all. I I had no idea and had never heard the stories of what Francine had endured in the WWF, WWE, whatever it was at the time she was there. Um, I had no idea that. Uh, it, it, none of it surprised me. I mean, it was all completely consistent with my, my experience and I know many other experiences were there uh, just uh, I, I keep going back to you know if I'm a coach in the NFL and I draft Ben Roethlisberger I'm not going with an exclusively pocket offense because Ben Roethlisberger is a scrambling quarterback like Fran Tarkenton or how many others from the past uh, why would you take Francine and not let her be Francine. It just, uh, the fans obviously loved it. As you can see from the feedback we got and the same type of feedback we got throughout our run together in ACW. Why would you put her on the air and say like, gee, slap me on the back every week and see what I got for you. Uh, <laughs> just mind boggling. I mean, it really, it, it really does boggle the mind when you think about it. Nothing against Francine, but why the hell was he spending the money to bring her in? If he didn't have something specifically catered to what Francine's strengths are, uh, stupid me. That's how I always thought business ran, <laughs> but apparently I was wrong. Yeah, it's so weird too that the parallels of just the six months that you both spent there and had you know similar frustrating experiences. Now I went back and watched her time. You know, I guess some of the highlights you can call them from her ECW WWE tenure. And uh, when you search them on YouTube, there's conflicting debuts for her, which is kind of funny because she mentioned that she was being paired with Balls Mahoney and that was her TV debut. But she actually debuted just in a backstage segment where uh, the storyline was that the ECW originals were pissed off at Paul because he had screwed somebody. I, I don't know the complete backstory 13, 14 years later, but they're all kind of standing in a line, and Francine's just standing there. <laughs> it's a, no fanfare, and the crowd yeah. kind of pops where you hear just like the like they hear the you know in the background. But sure. it's just so crazy. And John, I want to welcome John here for a second because we went to a lot of those shows. We went down to Philly a couple times for those those WWE ECW shows. I don't personally remember even seeing Francine on them. She may have been on a house show that we went to. But, John, with the way they misused Francine in ECW in that reboot, I didn't know half the stuff that went on that she talked about. That was really the first time I ever heard her really even discuss that run. Yeah, I definitely am with you on that. I definitely missed a, a lot of that run. I, I didn't even remember her debut in, in those house shows and, and different shows that we went to, whether it was in Philly or even in, they had one in Tom's River or Trenton or wherever the hell we went for a bunch of those shows. She was not on any of them. She just wasn't used, wasn't used to her capacity. And that story with her talking to Vince, I just thought that was hilarious. Nope, never seen your stuff. And it definitely goes to what Shane, you always say. (laughs) Vince never watched ECW, barely knew what it was. And he relied on other people to tell him what he, you know, what they saw in ECW. And he kind of, I guess, just took that and, and ran with it. 
Yeah, and again, you know, this is no in no way trying to put the franchise character over, but Francine walked with the world heavyweight champion from the earliest inception of that belt. Uh, now, how do you bring that major ECW character into the WWF, WWE, whatever the hell it was at that point, WWE, whatever, uh, and not do something? Here's an idea. Let's just have her standing in line. <laughs> it, it boggles the mind. If that's all you have for her, why hire her in the first place? It, it just It's stupefying. It really is stupefying. And I think completely reflective of all the stuff we've talked about over the last 52 weeks about all that's wrong in the business right now. Because when we say the business, for all intents and purposes, I, I, I'm referencing the WWE because... You know, nothing against Ring of Honor or TNA. They're there. They're still in existence. But much like ECW back in the day, wasn't a pimple on Vince's ass. Neither of them are a pimple on Vince's ass today. So uh, how do you do Again, why go through the folly of hiring somebody and putting them on payroll and then say, hey, guys, when you see me, tweet, slap me on the back and see if I have anything for you. I mean, it's condescending to the umpteenth degree to begin with, uh, and completely consistent with my experience of Vince to the ECW. Uh, I wonder, do you think it bothers him that he never hears a WWF chant right now or a WCW <laughs> chant or any other uh, things that, you know, libraries that he's bought, but you still will consistently hear the ECW chant uh, kudos to all the fans that keep that alive and the legacy. Like I said years and years ago, Vince bought the name. That's his. He owns it. But the legacy is ours, the wrestlers and the fans forever. And then a damn thing that billionaire can do about it. And I think it drives them fucking nuts. I love it. Yeah, he tried. I mean, that's 10 years ago now that he tried to silence the crowds. He tried to silence the fans. And now all he's done by even putting it on his network is he's just reintroducing the fan base to ECW. And if you watch, or if anybody's even watching at this point, what's going on on Mondays and Tuesdays, and then you pop on one of those old ECW shows, whether it's from the early days or, or even the, la the last days, it pales in comparison. And that's what I thought was very cool for Francine to even say, you know, because we've seen it with Mikey, we've seen it with you, we've seen it with Raven, we've seen right. it with guys that aren't necessarily in the fold with WWE at the indie shows and at the autograph signings, you guys have the people coming up to you that have seen you on the network. So it's really introduced you to a whole new world of fans. No question about it. Uh, you know, and, and, and thanks to Vince for that. Uh, my question from a business standpoint, solely speaking from a business standpoint, if I'm putting out a platform of let's say a million videos per year and, you know, promos and matches and backstage antics and all the rest of it. And 78% of those are people going back to watch pre 1990 stuff. I've got to start asking myself, what am I doing wrong? Why are it should be 78% watching the current stuff and 20, 25%, 22% of that in the case of 78 being watching the the older stuff and it's completely inverse to that uh you know i i just keep going back to and again i want to 
preface before I even say this. I, I try to do this every time because I don't want any of the kids in the business today think that I'm taking a shot at them. I'm not. Their athleticism has always astounded me. The difference being that for a guy like me that learned under the guys that I did and under the promoters and uh, uh, bookers that I did, uh, there was never a time that I was allowed to go out and just do what the match before me did or the five matches before me did or go out and throw six, eight, ten, twelve belly-to-belly suplexes. I'd have caught hell for that. And I should have. That's being lazy. Um, to not learn your craft. Uh, it, it astounds me. I mean, I, I, I know the people they have involved in their uh, training program, and I know the people they have involved as their agents. A lot of those guys are guys that I worked with and learned from. And yet when I turn that show on, I see no vestiges of any of those guys. Now, how is that possible? How, how could you have, say, an Arn Anderson, uh, at one time a Ricky Steamboat, uh, involved in that show, a Dean Malenko, and not see anything that is even vaguely reminiscent of what those guys did in the ring? I, I think it, it's shocking, uh, for me anyway. Uh, look, when I was a kid coming to the business, if Arn Anderson farted left, I was trying to figure out how to fart left. Uh, <laughs> because Arn Anderson was the man. Uh, and it just boggles my mind that you don't see any of that. Uh, you know, I, 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 you know I, without trying to drone on about this, I keep thinking to myself, what if these kids today, with their athleticism, that is mind-boggling, were taken by the nose, literally like I was, by the Pez Watleys and Dick Murdochs and Dick Slaters and Bill Watts and Dusty Roses and go down the list? What kind of magic would they be creating in the ring? It, it's, it's a huge question mark. Uh, but I have no doubt that they would be creating fucking magic in the ring, uh, the only problem is they can't because now they're given three minutes, four minutes, five minutes, and on the way you have to do this silly sort of lead into the uh, that the writers have written out for it. And like Vince has often said, how many times have you heard him say, "We're creating a TV show." Well, if that TV show was relying on the ratings, <laughs> I think he'd be playing the Roseanne right now. Um, <laughs> it's it's shocking to me. Even more shocking is to see that he sells his B show for $1.2 billion. As have, You guys have been at how many conventions, how many events, how many shows? How many fans have you heard say, I watch WWE today and I love it? I'm a huge fan. I, I think it's incredible. Oh have you God. ever heard it? I can barely hear uh, a murmur about the present day stuff. I mean, you see people with the merchandise, but nobody's talking about it. You know, nobody's going out of their right. way to, to talk about it. But what you were just saying with the agents, you know, I look at the crop of guys that was around 10, 12 years ago, because I see the people who are working backstage now more in kind of the, the class that came after you, you know, and they were the guys that were learning yeah. from you for the most part. Whereas you were looking at the guys that were coming right in front of you. And when you had, 
you know, Arn, Arn is still there, but obviously when you had Ricky Steamboat there and Ted DiBiase and Dusty was in creative and even Heyman in creative, that was a completely different mindset of, of workers within the business versus the guys that are there today that I feel like they learned more under the sports entertainment tree and they're looking more for what Vince is going to like and they're not really taking the onus on what maybe what used to be the focus, you know, am I making sense with what I'm trying to say there? Absolutely. Well, it, it, it beckons back to the comment that uh, Steve Austin made when he had Vince on his podcast. And, you know, Vince, he said, well, you know, the guys are, you know, afraid, blah, 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 you know, afraid to do this and that. And Vince said, well, they ought to reach for the ring. And when he said, well, they're afraid to reach for the ring because they're afraid of getting, and I'm, I'm paraphrasing, obviously. And then Vince said, well, then they shouldn't reach for the ring. Well, if you're a kid listening to that, if you're under contract and you hear the chairman of the company saying those words, me, if I was a kid in that dressing room, I sure as hell wouldn't reach for the brass ring. Uh, it's, it was perplexing to say the least. Uh, and, you know, but that's where we sit. You know, it's uh, the business that we're seeing and the product that we're getting uh, has, in my estimation zero reflection as to fan wants desires or tastes it, it has more to do with uh, a singular vision i want it to be this way and then how many i don't know about you guys but i've heard oftentimes when an hour before they're set to do a tv taping uh vince will tear a, a tv itinerary up and say rewrite it this is shit and uh you know, the writers have to then go back after working on that episode for a week uh, and, and in an hour try to scramble and put something together. Uh, I don't miss that place at all. <laughs> all that stuff to me is just like, no, thank you. It, it, uh, I watch the show and I see the results of that show and does nothing for me. And again, that's no onus on the kids. Uh for the people putting that show together and whoever's making the final decisions, wink, wink. Uh, <laughs> I think, you know, that, that it's, uh, it's awful. And, and I think the ratings and the fan reflection on that show is pretty evident. Yeah. 100%. And it reminds you of, uh, all the times they made fun of WCW post, uh, WCW closing <laughs> for the itineraries getting changed and, you know, Bischoff not telling people what was going on and the end of WCW being such a clusterfuck. And now it's, uh, it's kind of changed the narrative and happened to them. But I want to go back to what you were talking about with, um, people being trained and working. Now, Francine talked about how, you know, she trained to get into the business and she wanted to work. And the fact, and I thought, I mean, secretly and to myself, I, I laughed that, she wanted to take Kevin Thorne's finish. Obviously, our relationship with Kev, she's nuts that right. she wanted to do that. So, Francine, if you're listening, I give you all the credit in the world for wanting to get up on that big guy's uh, <laughs> shoulders and drop to the mat with uh, the force that he would drive you in. So that just goes to show you the the desire that she had to, to help put the product forward. And she uh, she's tough as nails. I give her uh, all the credit in the world for that. And if you're Vince, if you're the person making the decisions, why would you quell that? Why would you say, nah, we don't possibly want that? Uh, you know, it's, uh, look, I, I think everybody tuning in and watching understands that 
when you saw the pit bulls power bombing Francine through a table, for instance, that you weren't seeing male on female violence. It wasn't two big bustle heads beating some poor, beautiful, tiny woman. It was a woman who's been professionally trained uh, to do exactly that type of thing and uh, to get the reaction from the audience. And yet now we're, I guess, like, forgive me if I'm wrong, but I never remember wrestling being politically correct in my career. I, you know, going back to the days of seeing, you know, uh, uh, Don Morocco sweep the floor and eating a bucket bucket of chicken, getting ready to have a <laughs> match with uh, 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 Rocky Johnson. Um, not that that was certainly by today's standards uh, proper. But it sure as hell built the heat for the fans to want to see him get his ass kicked, which is the ultimate point of a baby face and a heel. A heel is supposed to incite the audience to want to pay their money to see him or her get their ass kicked. Um, it's not to go out there and say, hey, I'm really an altar boy and I ain't a bad guy. I help old ladies across the street. But now for this next five minutes, you should hate me and loathe me because... Uh, it's, it's, it's like throwing shit into a fan. Guess what? It's going to probably blow back in your face. You can't have it both ways. You can't sit there and say, this guy's a really bad guy, but he goes out and does all these fantastic things for these charities and all the rest of the stuff. That stuff can take place behind the scenes. How many times I saw Hulk Hogan go out and meeting with you know, sick and uh, really kids in bad shape and how those kids would light up and meeting the Hulkster. And within some relatively short period of time, 10, 15, 20 minutes, whoever the handler was would say, okay, kids, uh, we've got to get Mr. Hogan back to the dressing room. We've got a big match tonight. And if Terry wasn't ready to go back to the dressing room, if he hadn't said hello to every kid in that room, he would look at that person like drop dead and he would turn around and give every kid in that room his undivided attention. And then he'd walk around and, you know, say, Hey, I got a big bash out against the iron seat. I'm going to need some help from your brother. Can I, can I get some of your energy? And, and, and like he'd rub their arms and stuff. And you just see these kids blossom, like, you know, just unbelievable. Uh, there's no script to that. There's no way of writing that. It's something that happens, and that person's personality comes through. And you also don't have to then take a television camera and beam it out to everybody and say, look what a great guy Hulk Hogan is, um, because then it becomes patronizing. Um, but those are the things going backstage and, and behind the scenes. There's no reason or need to televise that or try to encapsulate that in a way to broadcast because then it becomes condescending. Uh, allow it to happen. But on television, Hulk Hogan from that day has to be a good guy. And a franchise character has to be a bad guy, despicable, that the fans want to see get pulverized in the end. There, there can't be a gray area in between where you say, well, Shane's sort of a jerk, but he's sort of cool, too. Uh, it has black hat, like Bill Watts used to say, black hat. White hat, that's wrestling. Oh my gosh. And you're so right, too, about uh, the Hulkster because 
there's some there's some video footage that's leaked of him doing that and watching him do it. That's mesmerizing to see the kind yeah. of the, the impact that he had. There's actually there's a video. I forget the organization that published it. It was from uh, 1993, and it was actually it was Hogan and the and the Macho Man meeting a, a group of kids outside the ring, and you could watch it like it was live on television to see the 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 yeah. gleam the gleam in their eye the the the, the you know the desire he has to to connect to them. It's um, it's fascinating. Sure. It's fascinating to watch. That's a great example. But I want to uh, I want to bring John back in here for a second because with all the positives that we had, I mean, I, <laughs> I talk about. I mean, overwhelming response. I mean, out of all the episodes that we've done, I mean, we've had a lot of great people reach out to us and say that they love the show and they love what we're doing because look, we're trying to do something different. We're trying to. You know, we're almost, I'm, we're trying to be like the ECW of podcasting here, you know? <laughs> I hate to use a cliche, but there was, of course, there's got to be one. <laughs> there's got to be Hell one. Yeah. And and unfortunately, um, Francine uh, had to uh, kind of lay some smackdown on a troll uh, over the weekend who posted a headline that said, John, I'm going to welcome you in because I, I don't want to, I don't want to misquote it. I don't want to get it right. But it said, fi- I believe it was financial struggles and her troubled past is what she talked about um, on our episode last week. Now, I I may have fallen asleep, which I don't think I did, but did I miss that? Did, did I hear her, not hear her talk about her financial struggles? I mean, where the hell did that come from? <laughs> yeah. yeah, definitely not. Uh, that definitely uh, was never said. I guess it's one of those people that they read, like, I don't. I, I can't even describe it. But you read something, you twist what you re, you read into something that was never there to begin with. I don't even know how to describe that accurately. But it's almost like you read something and then you you're thinking maybe you're crazy. You know, maybe you're delusional. You're thinking you read something else, and then you're like, you know, I'm going to post this and and get a headline out of it, and, and you know, grab some attention, and uh, you know, hopefully I'm right with what I read. Shane, have you ever uh, witnessed uh, anything like this? The guy completely misconstrued anything she said. It was almost 100% inaccurate to the point where I don't even know where he got it from. Yeah, yeah, quite often. I, I mean, you know, it's uh, you know, let, let's let's just sort of digress for a second. A troll. That's not a positive phrase. Uh, <laughs> when you go back to the Aesop's fables, the troll that lived under the bridge wasn't a nice guy. It was, uh, you know, hideous uh, creature that lived under that ate people. Uh, and it's not a positive thing to call somebody. So if you're going to go out and try to recreate uh, a narrative, uh, the three of us were on that show last week. I was pretty intently listening because I was completely mesmerized by what Francine was saying. Like I said earlier, most of what she was talking about, I'd never heard these stories before. And I never recall hearing anything even remotely touching on anything, even touching on income or <laughs> anything about that. So, I mean, this is the first I'm hearing this that, that it even existed. But, yeah, you, you see this quite often where – and I think a lot of that is driven, I think, from character, uh, you know, gimmick and character, uh, where Francine was associated with a pretty bad guy and – like we jokingly talk about on Twitter uh, back and forth, you know, about what an evil vixen she was. Uh, Francine was the best at that. Uh, but it doesn't mean that Francine Fournier, the, the human being that played that character, is an evil person or, uh, you know, whatever. 
it's just speaking of the skill that Francine Fournier brought to that character that she played, uh, which obviously she must have done fairly well if somebody's going to go to the extent and length of trying to recreate a narrative and, and, and make something that three of us never heard. Uh, and I'm guessing that none of our, our listeners heard in that podcast. It, it, it's, you know, it's sort of a double-edged sword. You know, you, you can't, uh, although I abhor that kind of stuff, you can't say, go out and play this completely unredeeming character and then get upset later when somebody maybe takes it a little close to heart or, you know, whatever that, that like you said, crazy, insane, fucking idiot, uh, tries to recreate that narrative or add something in that was, that not, nobody heard. Uh, but I think a lot of that stems from, uh, the, the, the gimmicks and the characters that were played by the people that play them. Um, I mean, uh, that's, a, that's the only kind of, uh, explanation I could give to something like that. But no, I heard nothing like that either. <laughs> it's sort of laughable. <laughs> It's laughable because if you really go back and listen to it, which I had to now go back and do, she actually says how she didn't have to worry about money because she was living at home and that when there was some of the financial issues with ECW happening, she didn't have to really worry. I mean, she actually went the complete polar opposite. I I vividly remember those those comments. Uh, Yeah, funny. (laughs) Maybe we're all just like sort of punch drunk and and, uh, there's some kind of uh, National Security Council type of NSA uh, DARPA type messages being squeezed in between that we're not hearing, but maybe only people that are on that wavelength, that wavelength with quotation marks around it can hear those things. <laughs> uh, and if, if, if you're one of those ones that get that wavelength, you might want to go get some professional help. Exactly. <laughs> so now, being that we had such a great uh, social media buzz. I, I decided it was time to cash this in. We've been sitting on doing this for a long time. But Shane, we took to the social media universe over the weekend and we threw out a poll to kind of throw out to the fans, see what they want us to talk about. So for next week on episode 54, we gave four options over the weekend. And those options are, and I'm going to have to click my mouse here, which I was criticized for uh, on last week's show. And the four topics that we threw out there were the night the line was crossed, your ECW debut, Cyberslam 96, and the mini Brian Pillman feud, and the guest stars of ECW, which would be, I I assume, to encapsulate all of the uh, kind of the names that passed through uh, through your time in ECW. And now, Shane, I hope you did not go and cheat and see the results, because I I know you had taken a little Twitter break because you were busy. But did you get to see what the winner of this poll was? I, I voted, uh, but I didn't see the outcome of the vote. I, I, I was on there briefly today and had to run uh, just <laughs> too many things going on. But I, I was able to uh, cast my own vote. I think I did that yesterday. And I was on there for maybe a half an hour today. I, I did not see the outcome. Okay. Well... The winner by a very, very slim margin. Uh, I mean, I'm ecstatic to talk about this. This is one that when we started the show was definitely on my list, and I know it was on John's list. So, John, I'm going to give you the honors. What will we be talking about 
next week on episode 54. ECW CyberSlam 1996 slash Brian F. Pillman. What do you think about that, Shane? And did you vote? Did you vote for that one? The loose cannon. Hey, look, voting is a sacred thing. You can't talk about that in public. I mean, <laughs> look, if I, if I would talk in public, I'm liable to get thrown out of a restaurant someplace if I would uh, if I would do that. Uh, but uh, no, I mean, hey, ecstatic. Uh, you know, we've we've talked briefly about Brian uh, before on the podcast, and I've talked about him extensively over the years. Uh, you know, I, I think Brian was an extraordinary talent uh, that brought something really, especially you know, today if you watch if you if you only watch wrestling in the last five, six, seven years, or I should say, sports entertainment. You know, you might sort of get lost and not sure if that's really, is that what the writers wrote him to say or whatever. But if you go back to that era in wrestling and you see what Brian Pillman was doing, and then you see what came in the next 10 years, uh, my God, what a, uh, you know, what a savant, you know, that, that he knew exactly where wrestling was going or he was trying to help take it or push it. Uh, he was so ahead of his time. Uh, you know, that loose cannon thing that, that, that Joey Styles threw on him, you know, was so apropos, uh, you know, Brian really, to me, personified everything that we saw come later in the attitude era and in ECW in later years, uh, you know, the mid to later years in ECW, but, uh, I, I keep going back to thinking there's no way. In fact, he was under contract at the time that he was doing those things and neither company WCW or WWF would allow him to do those things. And that's why I think Brian went off on those tangents when he got to ECW. We'll talk about it all next week because there's so much backstory to it uh, that, uh, I think it'll be fascinating for the fans to hear, but I'm pumped. You know, I, I, you know, to get to talk about Brian and you know what he brought to ECW for that short time that he was there, and the stamp that he left on wrestling, I, th- I think it still resonates today. So that's that's no small thing when you do something a quarter century ago and people are still mimicking yeah. today. I, I think pretty safe to say you made an impact so and so much of that loose cannon could be plopped right here into 2018 and still be uh pretty damn impactful but also on cyber slam 96 uh the franchise was in action taking on cactus jack so that in itself is uh is worth the price of this uh episode next week so what we're gonna do is we're gonna take the week and if you haven't heard one of our dedicated shows to one topic we basically, we go through the entire night, we go through kind of the buildup, we go through the backstories, and we kind of get a vibe for what was going on in the building with Shane and, and what he saw and his opinion of, of how things went down. So what we ask from the fans, if you want to contribute any questions to this show, please email us at the triple threat pod at gmail.com, or please feel free to hit us up on Twitter, either at Two Man Power Trip or at the franchise SD, or if you want to reach out and touch the show Twitter page as well, it's at the three threat pod. So please reach out and touch us, get us uh, some cyber slam and Brian Pillman questions and some information, and we'll touch on it next week. But really looking forward to that and thrilled 
that that was the one that reigned supreme. So, hey, next time we do a poll, we'll just take that one off the list and see what uh, other little uh, gem we can pull out and, and put it in its place. Some Somehow I think we're going to get a few questions come in. Uh, I don't know why I'm feeling that, but I think we're going to get a few questions come in at those various sites you just gave. Yeah, I, I sure hope so. Or I'm going to take out Mike Johnson and I'm going to urinate all over this uh, computer <laughs> right in front of Oh, wait. I'm jumping ahead of myself. <laughs> I'm jumping ahead of myself. So with that being said, let's kind of get into the really, and I got to say it's the only news of the week, and it is the absolutely unfortunate passing of Leon White, a.k.a. Big Van Vader. Yeah. Uh, there's so much to cover in terms of Vader's career that this is going to dominate the rest of the show time for the most part. And Shane, obviously you've known Vader for a very, very long time. And we know he's gone through some health issues. He even was on with us in early 2017 and made some very bold statements that ended up getting picked up by CBS Sports because he was so uh, stricken with this uh, heart problem that he had. But Shane, kind of what are your thoughts and reflections looking back at Vader's passing, which occurred about one week ago today? Well, the oddity to it was in, in this business, uh, you know, We've, you know, we've had this happen quite a few, too many times. And typically when somebody passes a close friend or, you know, compatriot, you, you get a call pretty quickly. Uh, I, I believe it was Wednesday when I had gotten a, a text from a friend who said that he had just read online of Leon's passing. And I thought, I can't, it can't be possible. I, we would have heard something. And I went and looked and found out, sadly enough, that it was true. Uh, I was, you know, seeing the, the, the tweets and stuff from the son Jesse on his official Twitter page. Uh, and I was shocked because the last I'd spoken to Leon uh, a couple months ago, uh, he had talked about that, you know, well, first of all, when this whole heart issue came up, what a year, year and a half ago, um, and I forgive me if I'm uh, if I'm off on the time frame a little bit. I, you know, time goes by so quickly I lose track of, uh, of specific times. But whenever the the heart thing first came up, uh, I spoke to him because you remember we were working on the classic wrestling revolution at that point, and. He said that he had spoken to another doctor and the other doctors, two, two other doctors, in fact, world-renowned doctors that dealt with that specific issue, and they had given him a much brighter prognosis and told him, you know, that the key is going to be losing weight and getting in shape and that sort of thing. And I'm sure you, like me, had seen <clears throat> over that time pictures of Leon uh, you know, posting pictures of himself online without a shirt, you know, losing 30 pounds, 60 pounds, 70 pounds, and uh, <clears throat> looked great, <clears throat> I thought. So when I got that, like I said, text uh, on Wednesday of last week, I thought, you know, this has got to be BS. You know, thank God cause we hadn't heard anything. And then when I found out that it was true, uh, there was that sort of sinking feeling that set in because I know that Leon in my discussions with him <clears throat> was he was looking to the future. He was working his ass off to get in shape and 
continue to drop weight. Uh, and, you know, was looking to the next chapter in his life. And, uh, you know, to see that that was unfortunately cut short. Uh, you know, I remember my mother as I was a kid growing up, <clears throat> always saying, tomorrow's promise to no man. My mother quoted the Bible quite often. And, uh, you know, it's incidences like this that makes that resonate in your head. You know, when you stop and you think back to my mom telling me that when I was a kid, um, and then you see it in, in real time and, and real life, and, and you see the impact that has. Uh, my positive takeaway of this, if there is one, is that, you know, if you see, and I'm sure you've been seeing like I have, the, the responses on Twitter, first of all, the, the massive outpouring uh, of people telling Leon's family, you know, how much Big Van Vader and, and their, you know, Jesse's father and, you know, their family member meant to them. Uh, that to me is the wrestling audience beckoning back. And because clearly you could look at the ratings and see that that's not the wrestling audience today. That's not the sports entertainment audience today. That, those are the fans that watched in the 90s when Leon was the monster in WCW. Uh, even later when he went to the WWF, uh, Big Van Vader, the, the, the killing monster from Japan. Uh, that's the outpouring from around the globe. And like I, I tweeted, tweeted to uh, Jesse earlier today, look, losing a parent is tough. Uh, I've lost both. They still sting today. Uh, you know, there's never a time that it really goes away. Um, but I've got to believe that in his family seeing the outpouring from fans around the world, that that has to account for something that, you know, that their, their father, their family member didn't just pass through here that he left a lasting mark. And I, and what a big mark Leon white left on wrestling. Huge. And you can't throw up the V with your hands without thinking of Vader. And you think about the mask that he wore in the ring, but you think about the mask that he wore to the ring. And there's so much about him that was revolutionary, whether it was what he could do in the ring between the ropes or what he could do just in Japan with uh, basically becoming to me, I mean, really, he's the first, I say, you know, giant American to take over the continent of Japan in, in a way that he did. I mean, everybody has their opinions, but I just think Vader was in a class by himself. But Shane, what was the first uh, interaction you had with Vader? Was it crossing paths in WCW in the early 90s? It was. I mean, I, I was obviously very well aware of who Vader was. Uh, and when, you know, we ended up in WCW at the same time, it coincided for me when I was tag teaming with Ricky Steamboat and uh, he was working on a nightly basis on the top of the card, uh, whether it was with Sting or Ron Simmons or whoever, uh, Leon was the main event. And then, uh, you know, after he had gone through that carnation incarnation, uh, he and Rick Rude teamed up to wrestle me and Ricky Steamboat. You know, so for me as a kid, uh, relatively speaking, 
<laughs> today. I mean, at that time, I had some experience in the business. Uh, I was still relatively new. Uh, we're talking around 93, so I was less than 10 years in the business. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm in the mo- in the ring with this monster Vader that all these stories, you know, that were just renowned about Leon and what he was doing in the ring to people. Um, and Rick Rude, you know, not to sell Rick short in any way. I mean, to me, Rick Rude was one of those guys that I watched as I was coming into the business and thought, like, what a what an incredible heel. Like, this guy sells it. I mean, he, he's believable on every level. And you put Rick Rude and Big Van Vader together. I, I mean, legitimacy, like, you have to underline that word three times, right, with, with, with our Rick Rude and Vader. Uh, when we worked with them, you know, Ricky and I were both the kind of, uh, of uh, wrestlers that loved to sell. But they took it to a different level. You know, because they were so, both of them, so believable in what they were delivering in the ring uh, that, you know, I got, I often told the story about how I would sit and watch on the apron how Ricky Steamboat would get girls at the edge of their seat crying. Uh, that's a true story. Uh, I saw the same thing with Ricky Morton. And when we were wrestling Vader and Rude, you would see this look of concern on the fans' faces, like like one of us was going to get maimed, if not both of us. Uh, the fans were so believing in both of them for good reason. Uh, you know, when you watch them, you know, and you, you we've often we've all seen the video, and and I've seen it a little closer than I care to. Uh, you know, when Leon would have him in the corner, and he'd throw those big, massive paws into like a bear, you know, batting you in the head. If you ever watch closely, you'll see Leon breaks time. So it's not like one and one, one and one, one and one, or two and two, two and it's one and one, one and one, two and one. And so you're trying to time it out to go with them. And those big, massive hands that were like ham, you know, hence the phrase ham hocks. I mean, they had literally hams on the end of his arm. And, you know, he's throwing those big slugs around. And you couldn't get into time with them. And, you know, when he caught you with one of those, you know, you saw stars for damn sure. But I don't say that in like a complaining way. I say it in the sense that from a baby face that loved to sell, Leon was so easy to sell uh, because, A, he looked like a monster. He wrestled like a monster. Uh, he was so big and impressive looking when you stood next to him that when you see a little 225 pound guy or 210 pound guy, whatever I was at the time next to him, uh, how could you not get sympathy? Uh, he was so believable and so realistic in what he delivered in the ring as was rude. Uh, I don't mean to digress from Rick in any way, uh, just because of, you know, Leon's passing and focusing on him. Uh, that, you know, he was like in my generation coming up, he was that one guy that was uber believable. You know, like you, you could watch him and say, okay, I buy it. If I ran into him in a dark alley someplace, I would turn and go the other way. That was Leon White, uh, big van Vader, Vader, the man they call Vader, whatever you want to call him. Uh, he he brought the goods to the table 
in a big way and drew a shitload of money as a result. With Vader being so big and so dominant and so athletic, obviously, specifically in, in his prime, and you know when he kind of debuts for New Japan, he squashes Inoki, causes a near riot. That believability factor is there with the fans, not only because he beat Inoki, but because of his look and his athleticism. When you first meet him and then you know start talking to him, he has a certain reputation. Is that reputation true or false as far as, you know, people saying, oh, he's an asshole or, or he's a mean guy or, or that? Or was that just something that people get from his character? Well, you know, Leon certainly had an edge to him. Um, you know, it wasn't like, let me preface that before I go any further. Uh, Leon was a damn good guy. Uh, but he also was in the business of professional wrestling. And in that business, Leon White, Vader, uh, was a heel. And he played that role to perfection. Um, But once you got to know Leon, uh, and, you know, Leon truly would... uh, The the parallels between him and Bam Bam Bigelow are so close to me. They were the exact same person, not not by a long shot. But if Leon liked you, uh, if, if, if there was something happening in the ring, you knew Leon had your back. Uh, but Leon also knew, having, coming, having, having come from the NFL, that he's not just a guy in a slot on a card. Leon knew that if you're going to play in a Super Bowl, if you're going to be a star in and that phase the NFL later and professional wrestling that you're going to damn well have to leave a mark to do that. Nobody's going to hand it to you. Nobody's going to sidestep and say, okay, Leon, today you're a superstar. Uh, and Leon white knew that very well. He learned his lessons in the NFL and he brought that and laid those lessons down in wrestling in a way that nobody had ever done before. You'd never seen a super heavyweight doing moonsaults and, you know, bouncing off the ropes the way that Leon did and, and moving around the way that that 450, 60, 70-pound guy did. Uh, just astounding, you know, from, from a performer standpoint. Sitting in the back and watching that monitor and see that big monster, that behemoth, move like that. It, it, it was stunning. I mean, honestly, stunning to sit and watch a guy that big, uh, move like that. You know, he completely rewrote how super heavyweights were perceived. You know, up until his time, uh, super heavyweights were guys that tackled each other and didn't sell, clotheslined, you know, maybe did a, a you know, body slam here or there. Um, suddenly you see a 450, 60, 70 pound monster <clears throat> doing moonsaults and, you know, catapults off the ropes and just amazing things for a guy that size. Uh, not kipping up from the, from the, you know, stuff that didn't fit that character. Everything Leon did, <clears throat> excuse me, everything Leon did fit perfectly in the parameters of that character, but it just elevated the entire uh, perception of heavyweights and super heavyweights after 
you know, in, in wrestling, there's before Vader and after Vader. And the before Vader is a very different time. The after Vader, you then start to see guys like Bam Bam Bigelow and other big guys that are going out and moving on Braun Strowman today uh, that move very differently than they would have, say, 25 or 30 years ago. So impressive. And him and Bam Bam definitely did change the perception of the big man and how they were could move so gracefully and still be that super heavyweight, scary, just intimidating force, but then do moonsault and, and flips and just do all this crazy stuff that you kind of, you know, shocked that you see out of somebody like that with Vader specifically when he does something like that, do you ever think to yourself like, man, I'm, I'm 200, you know, 40 pounds or whatever in my yeah. time. Like, like this guy is 400. You ever think to yourself, Oh my God, how the hell is he doing this stuff? Yeah, absolutely. Almost on a nightly basis. Uh, especially when I was in the ring with them, you know, you'd be in the ring and, and you'd see him moving away. And I get to tell you, you know, when, when you're looking at a 400 plus pound guy coming off the ropes, headed right towards your head, uh, there's a, there's a point where you think, OMG, like <laughs> life's about to end. Um, but Leon as snug as he was never, you never had to worry about a tater. You never had to worry about an errant move. Uh, him landing improperly, right? I mean, let's face it, he'd land on you, he'd kill you, right? As big as he was. Leon, uh, his, his gracefulness in the ring at, a, at being that size was jaw-dropping. You know, that you would sit and watch a guy like this moving around. And yeah, on a night-to-night basis, you know, Steveboat and I would go to the ring, and, you know, we were both fairly athletic, and then you'd see this monster get in the ring and, you know, doing the stuff that he was doing, uh, it was humbling, you know, to say the least. You know, how does a guy that size do it and do it so gracefully, you know, without killing the other guy? Uh, I, I think he rewrote the books. In many respects, he rewrote the books for what a big man in professional wrestling could be and to this day resonates. Uh, Vader has put a stamp on the business. I always think of Vader and Bam Bam as the two best big men of all time. I mean, people can talk about Andre the Giant, such a great draw, such a you know intimidating force, and such a big guy in the business. People always want to talk about Undertaker. I always throw Bam Bam up there, but I think Vader is the best, you know, super heavyweight big man, whatever you want to call it of all time. He just had all all that combination working for him of of being you know that five tool player where he can pretty much do do whatever he wants in the ring you know work many different kind of styles. I always think of his matches with Foley and how stiff they were, and then you hear about Mick and Mick, <laughs> you know and Mick wanted him to kind of be super stiff with him and cut him open the hard way. You look at some of those matches and just think like man you know. They're so brutal and so stiff, and and like maybe you know maybe that's where Vader gets it's some part of part of that reputation of being stiff. But Foley's calling for it. you know what I mean? Like he he wanted that 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 typical Vader scary kind of stiff match. Absolutely, and, and you know, and Vader could more than deliver. Uh, you know, oftentimes in this business, a singular incident can define a career. Um, 
when you look at Leon, there there are two that stick out bookends to each other, at least in my book. Uh, the first one being when he got his eye knocked out in Japan and popped it back in and continued, continued the match. <laughs> you know, from a mythical standpoint of creating this monster character, <laughs> what more could you do to top that? I mean, that, that is like the pinnacle of creating that kind of a character. And on the flip side, him being in the match where Mick Foley gets his ear literally ripped off. Um, those two bookending events, I think, completely encapsulated uh, the Leon White career. That Not to take anything away from his Japanese run, like you said, his, his squashing of Anoki. Uh, or so many other notable events in Leon's career. Uh, but him getting his eye knocked out and then popping it back in and continuing the match in Japan. And Mick Foley getting his ear ripped off, in large part, I think, because of Mick Foley's affinity to the crowd. Uh, Mick Foley was a much-beloved character to the fans watching wrestling at that time. And... The one commonality to both of those events is Leon White. Uh, you know, I, I, from a Booker standpoint, I can't imagine how you could ever even think of dreaming of something more than that. If one of you came to me as a wrestler and had half of that, a tenth of that, a twentieth of that to offer me in a, in a point of view of writing a character and angle for we got magic in a bottle. I mean, let's just write it and do it. Uh, Leon White had that. And by the way, Leon also had the, the gift of being able to go to the ring on a night-to-night basis, on an angle-to-angle basis, and deliver the goods. You can't think of a time of Leon White going to the ring and shitting the bed uh, you know, or giving a poor performance. His uh, match with Rick Flair in 1990 in Charlotte, to me, stands as the pinnacle uh, as to what a big man versus a classic wrestler match should be. So much so that me and Bam Bam used, to, used it as a template for our match in 97 uh, at the uh, Golden Dome in Pittsburgh with November to Remember. Uh, it was that special of a match. Unbelievable. Absolutely Unbelievable. Starcade 1993, yes. It's such a great, great match. It was a lot of people say it's Flair's last classic, like it's you know, really, really high rated, highly scored, whatever you want to say, fantastic match. They say that's one of Flair's last great ones, and pretty apropos that it's kind of like Vader's I wouldn't say coming out party because you had all those great matches in '92 versus Sting, but that was and you had those great matches in '93 versus Foley. So I mean, it was kind of just a culmination. Like man, this guy could have a good match with Sting, Foley, um, basically anybody. You put uh, Davy Boy Smith, anybody you put him out there with, he's gonna have a great match. I always think of a strap match, the White Castle of Fear strap match against Sting at Super <laughs> Brawl '93 as as one of the, those great matches. It's just so many different matches to his. It's just like, wow, I can't believe, you know, Vader can have a good match against this guy and that guy. And it's just, he's just amazing. And you look at his work in Japan, just so much great, great matches. 
What do you think is the, the big misconception on a guy like Vader looking back? Do you think it's that people thought he was overly stiff? Do you think it was his attitude? Like, what's kind of the biggest misconception you see on Leon White? Well, to me, the, the biggest misconception is, you know, when you hear the stories of people talking about Leon <clears throat> that did not know him and saying, well, you know, from this snippet of this information, I'm going to create this uh, overall view of Leon White. Um, you know, like, I, you know, when you, I, I see where somebody that wouldn't have gotten a chance to know him could be intimidated by his personality and uh, maybe even turned off by it. But Leon, you have to understand, from a professional wrestler's point of view, I get paid to go to the ring on a nightly basis, as did Leon, and we get paid to portray that character for a certain point of time. Uh, when we leave the ring, in our book, in a professional's book, uh, you bought a ticket, I went out and performed, or Leon went out and performed. And so we're solid. You bought a ticket and I performed. So we're even. Uh, but there are a handful of fans, a smidgen, a small proportion of the fans that come and think when they see you in a restaurant or a bar or a hotel lobby or an airport, that they have the right to come up and intervene and say, hey, give me your undivided attention. I'm one of your fans. And like any human being, uh, you know, everybody listening to this show, I want you to think about the last 24 hours, how many times, whether it was the grocery store, the Walmart, uh, the airport, or in public anywhere, did somebody do something, say something, represent something that pissed you off? Wrestlers are the exact same. We're human beings. And when you get a guy like Leon, who was <laughs> stout enough uh, and tough enough to certainly back up uh, the, the talk. Uh, in other words, he could walk the walk. And he's gone out and he's performed. He's, he's already fulfilled the contract you as a particular fan have with him. And then you think you have the right to uh, waylay him in an airport or a hotel lobby or anything that's mentioned. 99 times out of 100, you're going to get a guy that says, hey, man, great to meet you and sign an autograph for you. But on that one time out of 100 that he's having a bad day just like you had, uh, he's liable to tell you to go fuck off uh, just because you know, whatever, fill in the blank. Uh, wrestlers are human beings like anybody else. And I think that's the biggest misconception. And I think, again, like I mentioned earlier with Francine, uh, I think sometimes that's born out of somebody playing a character, a gimmick, an angle so well that the, the, the lines get blurred between reality and the uh, business. Uh, and I think Leon certainly fell into that. Uh, you know, there were times, I've been friends with Leon for decades, 
but there were times that, you know, I could tell by, by the look on his face, you know, he wasn't to be pissed with that having a bad day, whatever. And those, in, in those cases, it was, Hey, Leon, how you doing, buddy? Have a you know good one, whatever. And go on about your way. It wasn't so when you saw that look on his face, it wasn't something you wanted to sit there and say, Hey, Leon, let me ask about the meaning of life and get into some deep conversation. Um, but you know, it's, uh, you know, so oftentimes when somebody passes, you hear all these aggrandizing stories uh, about somebody. And, I, and I, I don't mean to be doing that here. I'm just relating the stories that of the Leon White that I knew. Uh, a damn good guy that I had a ton of respect for and I'm going to miss sorely. Uh, you know, 63 years old, in my book, that's a pretty young man. Um, my heart goes out to his family, uh, his fans. And hopefully the stamp that he left on the wrestling business, somebody out there has the balls to pick up and continue on with, because as, as it stands right now, it seems like there's a hell of a big wide open spot for somebody to fill in that super heavyweight. The Bam Bam Bigelow's and Leon White's of the business are gone. That is so true. It's a huge, huge gap left by those huge living legends and, and two of the best big men ever without a doubt. And you think about Vader and his career and not only wrestling, but football as well. Um, he played in the Super Bowl with the Rams. Like, you know, he, he's been a high level. Again, the Pittsburgh Again? Steelers. How could I not correct to you? Yeah. <laughs> You know, he, he's correct. a high-level athlete for a very, very long time, and then obviously his time in Japan. So, you know, big guy, traveling a lot, being that high-level athlete for many, many, many years, had to weigh uh, on his body and, and weigh on his heart. So it's one of those things where it's like, man, um, he left it all out there in his wrestling career, and he did a lot. Maybe he, he should have took it easy, but that's not the way Vader was, and he wanted to make sure – that he was known as one of the best big man workers and he kind of left it all out there. And I was just kind of thinking you along the lines, I know we mentioned some of, some of his favorite, your, your, our favorite matches with Vader. Do you have some other matches that stick out that you could think of Vader? I know you were talking about Starkey 93 versus player and it was the template for your match um, with Bam Bam Bigelow at November to remember 97, but do you have some other Vader matches that stick out? Maybe some that you had against him. Yeah, I, you know, back keep in mind when when we were in WCW, uh, Bill Watts was, was the booker, and at that time uh, there was a, a rule that I hated at the time. But as I've gotten older in the business, I I see the wisdom in what Bill Watts was trying to say that if you wanted to be the main event or be in the main event. How could you aspire to that if you don't even stick around to watch the main event? Because the guys in the main event are there for a reason. They're there because they're drawing the house. They're there because the company has invested money into them. And they invested money into them because they had the goods. Uh, it's as simple as that. It's really a basic formula. So on a night-to-night basis, I would get to watch Leon versus Flair. Leon versus Sting, Leon versus uh, Ron Simmons. All three of them 
incredible performers in their own right. And Leon would go out and do exactly what you are supposed to do in a main event. Uh, make the other guy, regardless of whether you're going over or, or not, that's an irrelevant, an irrelevancy to the outcome. Uh, your job is to make the other guy. If, if you're going over, the saying was, make them before you take them. Uh, if you're going under, it was to get your shit in to make it count. And Leon did that every night, regardless of who he was working with. And I keep in mind, Flair, Sting, and Simmons, all three very different types of wrestlers, uh, all great in their own respect, uh, all have phen- phenomenal aspects to their uh, careers. Um, but Leon was the commonality between those three. If, again, not taking anything away, Flair obviously brought a lot to those matches. Flair was Flair. Uh, Sting brought a lot to those matches. Ron Simmons brought a lot to those matches. But Leon, when you think of any three of those angles, you don't think of those matches and think of just Flair or just Sting or just Ron Simmons. You think of them and Big Van Vader. So on a night-to-night basis, I got to watch that. Uh, everything I've set up to now about Leon is predicated off of that. Um, plus my time in the ring with him, uh, in, in tag matches with him and Rude and me in Steamboat. So, uh, I, I don't, I don't, so right now, I don't see anybody that's ready to step in or have, I shouldn't say not ready. I've, I've seen nobody that has yet stepped into that, uh, singular super heavyweight role. You know, when Vader was wrestling, he was, even if you're watching WWF when he's in WCW, you were damn well aware of who Vader was. Uh, we have to, uh, I'm still waiting to see somebody today to put that kind of stamp on the business. Such a legend, if you will. I just think of some of the fans, and I, I hate that they do this, Nowadays, when you go through Twitter, you go through some of these things that you're like, now, after he passed, you're talking about how great he was and how he should be in the Hall of Fame, and, and he's one of the best big men. Where were you, you know, when he was alive, when he, you know, uh, you know, looking for right. booking, bookings, or, you know, he's looking for, yeah, yeah, buy his shirt, or, you know, whatever, where he's kind of, like, put himself up, and you, know, you got guys like McFoley saying, yeah, you're right, he's the greatest big man, and, and, and you know, fans like us who really appreciated him. You ever get annoyed by some of the fans, you know, after the person passes? Oh, yeah, yeah. Almost being fake fans. I, it's just it's just a little pet peeve of mine. It's like, where were you when the guy was alive? Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, look, it's, you know, our fans, understand that most of the fans don't really understand what what goes on in a professional wrestler's career. Um, but, like, the larger question to that to me is, uh, I know for a fact from having had several discussions with Leon in the last several years, the one thing that he, much like Ivan Koloff, really coveted was to get it, to being inducted into the Hall of Fame. I don't think in any measurement of any Hall of Fame, uh, Leon White, Big Van Vader, Vader, the man they call Vader, I don't see how he doesn't figure in. And my question would be, if Vince McMahon were listening to this, 
why is it not possible for you to give these guys that, uh, I want to say reward because they've earned it, um, that sensation, that uh, uh, feeling of having capped off an incredible career before they die. Um, to me, I know the Leon White I know, you know, forget the big badass and all that, but like Bam Bam Bigelow, big teddy bear. Once you got to know him, we're on his good side. Why is it not possible for a guy like that to experience standing in front of the Hall of Fame? In Leon's case, he did it inducting other people. In, in Leon's case, Stan Hansen, uh, rightfully so. Uh, but why did Leon White not get the right to feel the elation of standing there of having been inducted to the Hall of Fame. Uh, everybody that's listened to me on Twitter, uh, anybody that's ever listened to me talk, knows my feelings on this. Uh, but a guy like Leon White certainly deserves to be in the Hall of Fame, and he certainly has earned his right to feel the elation of that. And sadly, now it's too late for that. Uh, so... You know, it's, uh, you know, the guy making the decision sleeps well tonight because that to me is a sting rebuke. It is sad that he didn't get in before he passed because he really, really was lobbying for it. He really wanted to get in. And it is shocking again, like we talked about Ivan Kolov a couple weeks ago, not getting in before he passed. He's another shocking one. It's like, wow, you know, this person, this person, and how the hell is Vader not in it? Especially when after he inducted Hanson, I was like, okay, now this year he's definitely going to be inducted. And it just never happened for him. It is strange. And I guess it's just the way Vince, you know, thinks that we've like, oh, let's induct uh, the Dudley boys who, 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 no offense, I know uh, you are a big fan. No offense. They could have probably waited sure. a couple of years. You know what I mean? They didn't just, you know, retire 20 years ago. They just retired like a year ago or two years ago as a team, so to speak. So they could have waited a while. It's just weird. It's like put Vader in or, or, you know, have some sort of timetable where certain guys get in and then you put in the newer guys, the newly retired guys. Some of it just doesn't make sense whatsoever to me. Well, here's, here's a real simple solution. Instead of allowing Vince McMahon to make the decision, the end all be all. Allow the fans to have their input. Allow the fans to have a vote. Uh, let's face it, Vince has more than a few outlets that he can put a ballot out to let the fans. We, we did a ballot for our podcast, or I should say you guys did, uh, for next week's show, and we got a considerable feedback. So Vince could do the same thing and get the same type of feedback in overwhelming numbers. Uh, and how about the guys that are in the Hall of Fame? Why don't they have a vote? I would take a stab and believe that anybody sitting in a Hall of Fame has an idea of what a talented wrestler is and should have a vote and a say in that. Um, and I believe once you do that, because I believe it's inevitable, it has to go to that. Uh, once you do that, I think you'll see a much more, and I hate to use this term because it's so, so overused, but a much more organic uh, approach to a Hall of Fame. If the fans and the people that are in the Hall of Fame are the ones making the voting and deciding who goes in and who goes out, 
that's about as uh, baseline as you can get, about as legitimate of a vote as you could get. If the fans say they want this guy instead of that guy, or this woman instead of that woman, then clearly the fans have spoken. And, and, and where I come from as a performer, that's what we all work for on a nightly basis, on a match-to-match basis, is to get reaction from the fans. So what more could you do than to give the fans an input and a loud voice in picking and selecting who goes into the Hall of Fame? My guess would be that there would be a few that are in there that shouldn't be and wouldn't be, and a few that aren't, probably more than a few that aren't, that would be. Uh, but that's my two cents. Uh, what the hell do I know? <laughs> now, can I play uh, devil's advocate for uh, for uh, Mr. Vince McMahon for one moment? Sure. Maybe, maybe all these years that Vader did not make it into the Hall of Fame when they were doing the decision process, maybe they were still trying to figure out who Big Van Vader was because if you were a WWF fan... I'm sorry, he's the man they call Vader. He's the Mastodon. He's not He's not Big Van Vader, so maybe that's where the confusion lies. Maybe Vince just doesn't know who Big Van Vader is. It could be. It's, it's, it's very possible, but, you know, I, it's, uh, uh, you know, all kidding aside, I mean, you know, how do you look at a Leon White, regardless of what you call him, do you call him, Tim Buck fucking too. How do you look at a Leon White and not induct him to Hall of Fame in the 20 plus years since his uh, his retirement from the ring, so to speak, even though he's worked until recently? Uh, how do you do that? I mean, it's to me, it's tantamount to saying a Terry Bradshaw doesn't get in, a Roger Staubach doesn't get in. Uh, a, a Joe Montana doesn't get in. That's the level Leon White was in the professional wrestling business. Uh, right up there with any of the greats that reside in the Hall of Fame. And I don't mean to take anything away from anybody. I don't want anybody to misinterpret what I'm saying here. Uh, but there are an awful lot of guys of that stature that are not currently residing in the Hall of Fame that damn well deserve to be. You know, there's a, a documentary coming out. And I haven't seen it yet. I've just seen the previews called 350 Days about the life of a professional wrestler and what these wrestlers, what these men and women put in to being a professional wrestler. It's, uh, and I don't mean this in any kind of way of sounding like I'm complaining, where I, I dreamt of being a wrestler. I it was the, the hope and ambition in my life. Uh, and yet I was able to achieve that. How, but how do you look at somebody that puts that kind of time in and puts their family and their friends and their life on hold? I mean, Steve Williams didn't go to his father's funeral because of the wrestling business. How do you look at a guy like that and say, yeah, I just don't see you as being worthy. Uh, you know, I have a very diff- different definition. Uh, there are guys that reside and women that reside in the Hall of Fame that many, not me, just me, several people scratch their head at. And then there are others that are not in the Hall of Fame 
that a, a larger number of people scratch their head and go, how the hell is he not in the Hall of Fame? Or how the hell is she not in the Hall of Fame? Uh, but the only way to answer that is to ask a guy with the initials BKM. Uh, me personally, I, I can't answer it. It just seems like bullshit to me. Now, did you get a chance to click the link that I sent you um, that was covering our interview that we did with Vader from uh, March 2017? I did. Uh, let me find the paperwork here and re pull up to recall it. So, I got all my records in front of me. So when we interviewed Vader, uh, obviously it was, a, you know, it was a great highlight for our show. Uh, John, you know, being a plethora of uh, knowledge when it comes to what Vader did in Japan, and obviously being a huge WCW fan, it was very easy for us to to kind of get some content. And again, it's one of those interviews where we thought we were going for 15, 20 minutes, and we ended up going for over an hour. And uh, the highlight that came out of it at that point was Vader saying that, you know, if he was going to die with this heart issue, he was going to die in the ring where he wanted, and he was actually yes. going on a pretty lengthy Japanese tour afterwards. So we all know, you know, just based off of people who have heart conditions, that flying, especially to Japan, um, probably not the best uh, thing to do. And I believe Vader actually passed out uh, when he landed in Japan, and it kind of delayed some of the festivities that they had planned uh, when he got there. But with that interview, you know, I always clipped the legacy after a guest of ours passes away, and Vader talked for 12 minutes about the legacy that he feels he was leaving in uh, professional wrestling. And he goes out of his way to mention guys like Bam Bam and Stan Hansen, and being that the big man was really changed and revolutionized um, with those three guys sure. doing so. But you know, hearing him say those things of you know if he's going to die with that heart condition, he was going to die in the ring. Does that does that as a fellow wrestler, your you know your in ring brother, does it does you does it make you feel, you know, does it make you feel weird to hear that, or is that something that you kind of can kind of see that a guy who makes his life in the ring like that, you know, would have those kinds of sentiments about you know his uh, his demise? No, there that, that I mean that really fits in very seamlessly with what I know of guys that love the business. Uh, you know, for those of us that watch The Wrestler, um, there there is a, you know, at the end when he's jumping off the ropes and it sort of fades away and you're not quite sure what happens to him, but you can sort of surmise. Uh, that is, you know, not some, you know, cinema, cinematic or anything, but that really is, you know, the guys that have spent their lives in this business, traveling the world and entertaining fans around the world. Uh, not that anybody, none of us wants to die or hopes to die, uh, but that, you know, if, if you're going to pick a place to die, that would be a place to do it with a crowd on their feet, uh, getting their money's worth, enjoying themselves. Uh, if you're a baby face, the fans popping, if you're a heel, the fans throwing shit in the ring, uh, you know, that is like the, the, you know, the, the perfect, uh, epitaph to a career. Um, but I, I think, and just in having read what I read, what Leon said, I think he meant that more in the, in the, uh, metaphorical sense that he wanted his life to be recognized by what he do had done in the ring. Uh, notably, notably, not what he had done in the NFL, not what he had done 
in any other aspect of his life, but what he had achieved in the ring. Uh, Leon White will forever be known, not as a, an L.A. Ram or a Cincinnati Bengal or a uh, you know, person who lives down the street. Leon White is going to forever be known as the man they call Vader. Uh, and, you know, the, the few people that ever get into this business have the opportunity to leave that kind of a epitaph to their career and leave that kind of a stamp on an entire industry. Uh, Leon White did that. And although I'm sure Leon, if he were here to talk, would love to be around for another 63 years. Uh, you know, like my mother used to say, tomorrow's promised to none of us. And, uh, I always tell people, you know, if some happens to me, I've lived more life than most people do in 10 lifetimes. And I'm sure Leon in many ways felt the same way. Um, none of us want to leave our kids. None of us want to leave our families and our friends behind on our fans. But in, in Leon's way, I think he was saying in that interview and in other interviews that he's proud of what he accomplished in the ring and, is willing to let time be the test as to what stamp he left on the business. And I think in that case, it's an immense one. Uh, you know, few people get into wrestling, leave that kind of a stamp on this industry. Yeah, and we're going to be dedicating our show on Friday. Uh, we have a very special guest joining us Friday, but... You know, we usually uh, play a little clip and we, uh, you know, when we have somebody on, especially when they pass, we like to remember them one last time. And uh, we'll be doing that with Vader this coming Friday on our two-man power trip episode that's going to publish. Nice. And, you know, it's always unfortunate. I mean, I don't like to have that distinction of doing that, but it's the only way I feel like we can honor, um, you know, the, the guys that we watch, the guys that gave their heart and soul to the business. Obviously, Vader... Big Van Vader, the man they call Vader, the Mastodon, the Baby Bull, uh, Leon White, sorely, sorely will be missed, uh, without a doubt, for all wrestling fans and obviously people, Shane, you know, workers as well in the business. You guys all miss him. So we will put uh, the Vader portion of this show uh, to bed for right now. We have one other topic we want to cover, and uh, it's kind of a cool topic because, you know, Australia being what it is for professional wrestling, having a rich, rich history. Uh, now we kind of see that WWE global expansion really taking shape. We saw them in Saudi Arabia uh, earlier this year, and now they're going to be going to Australia this coming fall. And Shane, I mean, it's the, the details behind it again, it's another one of these uh, crazy deals that they strike up with. Uh, I don't know if it's a tourism thing or, <laughs> or what, but now they're heading to uh, Australia with the WWE Super Showdown this coming uh, fall, and uh, Dominic Danucci's huge history in Australia and wrestling being literally on the other side of the world for the most part. Uh, what do you think about this move, yet another strategic global expanding move uh, that they've made yet again? Well, I mean, look, when you're the sole entity in an industry, uh, as it currently stands, as Vince is, uh, you know, the Ring of Honors and the TNAs, they're all, uh, much like ECW in its day, had its niche. But there's no real competing uh, force against the WWE. And we can see the results. $1.2 billion contract with Fox for their B show, triple the amount of money from their Raw programming with NBC Universal, uh, and now this 
deal going to Australia. Uh, I mean, unopposed, you know, armies unopposed drive to the sea. And, uh, you know, we're seeing, I think, Vince do that right now. Uh, the reason being because there's no counterbalance. There's no uh, other company. There's no competition out there to provide the fans with a counterbalance, an alternative point of view. Um, you know, the I'm going to be interested to see how it does. I mean, my guess is it will do well uh, because, you know, they're, they're making this big of a deal out of it. They're going to put a lot of money into promotion. They're going to put a lot of money into getting the word out and talking about Australia, Australia, Australia. Um, it's going to be curious to see how, how, how things turn out there. Uh, but, you know, the fact that there is, as of right now, no counterbalance to what the WWE is offering, you can imagine why in a place like Australia, where, you know, the major company, singular, goes there very scantily because it's a, it's a pretty good <laughs> jaunt to get there in the first place. Uh, but that, you know, that, that it's sort of, uh, how do I say it? Uh, you know, they're going there as a, it, it seems to me like a Johnny come lately. You know, it, the, the WWE was the last time the WWE was in Australia. Um, that they're going there, it's just like they sort of look at the map and say, you know, again, the world's a big place, but how do you look at it and say, you know, an entire continent gets a show or a series of events every so often or whatever? Uh, you know, it, it, to me, wrestling is a personal business. It's, yeah, you can watch us through the internet. You can watch us, especially now on YouTube, you can watch me throwing the belt down in 1994. Uh, we're all eternally young uh, as a result of that. But as a live product, wrestling is always going to be, a, like any sport, a live product. And, you know, I can sit there and say, hey, the Pittsburgh Steelers beat the Dallas Cowboys in Super Bowl Ten, and ain't that cool. And I can watch that game over and over and over and over again. But sooner or later, I want to see the Pittsburgh Steelers play somebody else, and I want to see another game something more, uh, you know, so in looking at them going to Australia, you have to ask yourself, you know, what's the reasoning and why are they going now and how will they draw? Let's, let's all sit and watch. Um, but the world's an awful big place, you know, and for a company, even as big as WWE, that means on any given night, there's a, shitload of the planet that's not getting covered and seems to me that there's a huge opportunity for a competing company or plural competing companies to go out there and carve out their niche uh, as it were so let, let's see what happens but you know it's uh you know we know that when they do something like this, the way they announce it they're gonna leave no stone unturned they're going to have every major star they can get there. Um, but my take on Australia is the Australian fans are, are pretty discerning, pretty intelligent. And will they come out? Like when WCW went there, mm, 
And right before, like, I'm guessing 99, 2000, uh, they went and they brought a loaded card and they did decent business, not fantastic. Uh, why? You know, the, the, the conventional wisdom would say, well, wrestling gets here so seldom of the big companies. Why didn't it sell out? And I think if you go back and look at the quality of the company at that time, it sort of is a self-fulfilling prophecy. It sort of answers its own question. So I'd be curious to see how the, the Australian fans react to the sports entertainment program coming their way uh, with WWE. Now, you mentioned the stars, and you mentioned coming out in full force, which they, uh, they did that with the Saudi Arabia card. You saw the return of The Undertaker. You saw John Cena versus Triple H. I mean, big-time marquee matchups. Now, how about this for a little wrinkle, and I'm dying to uh, kind of get your take on this. Now, retirements in professional wrestling being what they are, people sometimes coming out of it, as you're saying, yeah. they're, they're retired and, and honoring it, but you could really count on one hand the amount of guys that are retired or haven't retired and stay retired. Now, uh, an old running buddy of yours back from the, uh, the Four Amigos days, is rumored to be coming out of retirement for this show. And the Heartbreak Kid, Shawn Michaels, donning the tights, possibly. They're saying Shawn Michaels will be in action in Australia. Now, what do you think about a move like that? Do you think that Shawn should be the kind of guy who sticks to that retirement? Or do you think it's worth it for a big show like this on the other side of the world to just jump in there one more time and uh, you know try to uh, do what the Heartbreak Kid used to do in the ring? Well, look, I mean, Shawn Michaels is one of the biggest names in the history of our business, right? So you can understand the reasoning behind it. Uh, but when you under, understand the industry and you understand what it is we're trying to do when we go into an area, <clears throat> to me, it underscores the weakness of what is the WWE right now, that they have to pull Shawn Michaels out of retirement or... <clears throat> pull Undertaker out or Steve Austin or Mick Foley or, or whoever. The same guys we see ruled out every year at WrestleMania. I'm a fan of all of them. But that you keep seeing them ad nauseum ruled out you know, in, in these type of events. To me, it, the, under, the, the, the print between the lines is that Vince doesn't believe that his younger guys can draw the house that the card as is right now that you see on a week to week basis can't fill those buildings can't entertain a continent like Australia. So I, I find it sort of interesting that when you do these types of things, you have to keep pulling these guys out. Um, look, any, any, wrestling purist fan is going to want to see a Shawn Michaels wrestle. Um, but to me, I think it speaks more for the state of the company and where sports entertainment sits right now. When you start having to pull these guys out and, you know, uh, put these type of events on, um, and, and the, the final in the final analysis, Father Time catches up with all of us. You know, I can tell you right now from personal experience, 
the speed that you had at 25 ain't the same at this age. The strength that you had at 25 or 35 ain't the same at this age. Uh, you know, so my question would be for, for a guy like Shawn Michaels would be, why would you want to come out at this point? If, uh, to, to put that legacy on the line, you know, the, the last great match is what the fans remember of you. And so why would you want to come out if you're comfortable and you don't have to do it? Why would you want to come out at this stage of your career and remind the fans of what it is you used to be? Um, cause look, I, I can state definitively that there's no way Shawn Michaels will be, will be able to perform at the level Shawn Michaels, the fans remember, uh, that he'll be able to perform at the level as the fans remember Shawn Michaels performing at. That's not a slam. That's not a, a, a snarky attack or a comment. That is called father time. That's called reality. And uh, I, I think it just speaks, if you, know, if you understand this industry like I do, I think it speaks far more for the state of where the WWE resides today and for the faith that Vince McMahon has in his younger talent. And also, um, unless he's going to grow back that old school Shawn Michaels mullet, uh, I can't fathom <laughs> seeing him with the uh, the businessman haircut uh, get in the ring. I think the hair sell was a big deal with Shawn Michaels. That's a uh, that that would be a huge loss. Well, you know, it's it's uh, you know, they got they get a lot of things. I, I was on the air on the plane the other day, and I'm reading through the airline magazine they have this cap you can wear now for like so many hours a day or something well it's like a baseball cap and it's supposed to regrow your hair uh, uh i'm listening so, i'm interested speaking for the franchise who has a full cloth to this day <laughs> i uh I, I don't need to spend the 800 bucks on that on that hat but uh others maybe maybe not so much maybe they maybe there's a uh a vip line for the the uh, bold cap. <laughs> <laughs> now it is that time again. AFA, ask franchise anything. Now each week we get a bunch of emails and you kind of have to sift through them. Are there anything good? Is there anything old from some other emails we didn't get to? You know, and some of them you get some weird questions or some questions we've answered already or just some general silly questions. But this was a really good question. We got this pretty recently and I felt like this should skip the line and jump some of the other ones just because I like the question so much. So here we go. Franchise, do you ever see wrestling evolving back to the classic storylines with great heel versus baby face storylines that grab the fans' attention and keep the fans anticipating the next show? Now, he, he goes on from here, and I'm going to read the rest of it. Just hear me out here. There are a few other guys out there like Silas Young from Ring of Honor that work a true heel style, but now, sadly, mm -hmm. it's all about being cute and acting silly and pandering to select fans that like dives and flips without compelling drama during the match. I'm beyond tired of seeing a guy that looks like the local Subway sandwich artist doing ridiculous high spots that most of the time fail miserably. I'm tired of seeing both wrestlers look like they are helping each other doing moves, and it's obvious nowadays they look like they are rehearsing for a dance recital. This madness has got to stop. I know there are so many other long-time fans like myself that feel this way, but 
still hold out hope that things can change. Thank you, John Means. Now, great question and, and just great little story there he put together. Shane, do you ever see wrestling evolving back to the classic ways of yesteryear? Well, it's a great question. Uh, I, I honestly believe that that's the only way forward. I mean, uh, you know, this was always the question as wrestling was making this huge jump. And remember, I was there for all of it. I was there for the inception of pay-per-views uh, when one a year did great, and then it was four a year, and then it was, hey, let's have 900 a year, and they'll, we'll make, you know, no, that's not the way it works. Um, you know, at what point does a fan get tired of seeing the same move in match one, match two, match four, six, seven, and ten? Uh you know, there was a reason why the greats in the ring didn't go out and repeat the things that they'd seen before them. And it was to keep the fans from becoming disinterested. So I think that, you know, as fans know, uh, I make a very clear delineation between professional wrestling and sports entertainment. I never considered myself a sports entertainer. I always considered myself and prided myself on being a professional wrestler. Uh, I think the only way forward for the business is if there's going to be a competing company. You know, Vince McMahon has sort of found a niche as the sole entity. Uh, I mean, how else can you explain selling SmackDown for $1.2 billion? Uh, it's jaw-dropping. Um, so I think the only way forward, if there's going to be a, a countervailing company, is to get it back to those basics. Uh, you know, like Bill Watts said, black hat, white hat, that's wrestling. Uh, baby faces sell. Uh, they don't come out of a cell, certainly in a deep cell, and suddenly jump to their feet like, like there's an Espen printed on their chest and hit the ropes to a moonsault and run for two minutes, get clotheslined down, and then go back to selling the knee that they were selling before. Uh, that's garbage. That's sports entertainment. And I think if you look at the numbers, uh, you know, and I know these intimately well from having worked so deeply on this stuff that I have in the last few years, what the industry that once commanded 48, an average of 48 to 52 million fans per week is now garnering two to two and a half million and falling. Uh, that's not a pause. There's no way to paint that number pretty. Uh, now, if you're the sole entity in the, in the industry, uh, on, on a national, international level. You can sell it for a lot of money, apparently. Uh, rumor has it. But, you know, the, the industry has to get back to the semblances of what may... Because what, otherwise, it just becomes, I can do three flips in the air, and you can only do two. And the next guy's going to come out and say, well, I can do four, and you can only do three. And then at some point, somebody's going to come out and say, well, I can do five, and you can only do four. You know, there, at some point, you hit a physical wall. You know, what, how many flips can you do in the air? How many times can you know sell something? When I was a kid in the business, and this takes me full circle, because when I was a kid in the business, trying desperately to learn my craft, and I would hear the old timers in the business, you got to learn to tell a story, kid. You got to learn to tell a story. And I kept thinking, what the fuck are they talking about? I'm out there wrestling my ass off. I have no idea what I'm talking about telling a story. Would I stop and grab the microphone and say, once upon a time? I, it was perplexing to me. And all of a sudden, one day, the light bulb went on. 
and I understood intimately well what the old timers were telling me. And as hard as I was, and here's the crazy part, I was killing myself in the ring prior to that. Once I, that light bulb went on, I was still working hard in the ring, but I wasn't killing myself because there was a better way to get from point A to point B. And oh, by the way, you entertain the fans along the way. Once you've seen a backflip or two or three or four, at some point they become trite and common and uninteresting. Uh, you have to continue to entertain the crowd. That's what we're there for. When I, when I worked for Bill Watts all those years ago, if you went out to the ring and didn't do that, you'd get your paycheck and it would say Pittsburgh minus $500. And you didn't even have the balls to go ask. You knew. I went out there and was lazy, didn't have a very good match, and I didn't entertain the paying fans. That's why you got the minus $500. Uh, and, and you don't entertain the fans if you just go out and do the same thing that the match before you did and the match before that did. You entertain the fans by bringing that singular character that you are, what makes you different. And this goes back to my earliest days in the business with Scott Irwin. We've talked about this before. Scott Irwin telling me, find a way to be different, kid. And that's what makes you different from the guy before you and the guy after you or the lady after you uh, is to be different. Your character must be different. I don't care if you're called Joe Schmo and Billy Smith and uh, Jackass John. Uh, when those three wrestlers go to the ring, if they do the same thing that the wrestlers before them and after them do, they're not entertaining the fans. And at some point, whether it's today, tomorrow, next month, next week, uh, or next year, the fans are going to say, ah, I ain't going to buy the ticket to go see Jackass John because he does the same thing the guys before him do. Even if the fans can't enunciate it in the same fashion that I just did, at some point, they're going to stop drawing. And when you stop drawing, the company stops making money. Now, astoundingly, we've seen the WWE their draw dropping to the floor, their house show attendance from 12,000 to 5,600 and dropping their house show per head merchandise sales dropping from 36, $37 to $11 and dropping, uh, their, uh, network buy rate dropping and we, on every number we see dropping and yet somehow they're able to sell SmackDown for 1.2 billion. That's only because in my estimation, in my singular humble opinion, because they're the only company that's offering a national program out there. There's no competition. And you have to be able to bring the fans in on a show-to-show -show basis, whether it's TV to TV or TV to venue or TV to venue to pay-per-view. You have to be able to bring the fans in with their money because ultimately it's a decision is a business. And if you can't do that, if, if it's just in the company buying, Kevin Sullivan had said one time that Vince McMahon had always wanted the WWF, WWE to be the star. In other words, people are paying to come see that company. doesn't matter who, it's The Undertaker, Shawn Michaels, or Jackass John that's, that's, that's on the card tonight. And I think he's achieved that. I think as of right now, that's what the fans are coming to see. And I, I think that's why you've seen this huge drop off in all the numbers numbers that I just cited. 
So getting to the, 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 the question that was posed, if the business is going to go forward uh, in the way that we all remember it and love it, it has to get back to the basics of what the business is supposed to be. Black hat, white hat, that's wrestling. A heel can't be sort of an asshole, but sort of cool. And a baby face can't be sort of cool and sort of an asshole. Those are all gray areas. Black hat means you're a despicable piece of shit. And as a hero, as a baby face, like John Wayne and all his movies, you're wearing the white hat indisputably. It's you're the good guy. It's not the question. You're definitely the good guy. And if that's the case, then you have to go out and perform in that way. So watch Monday Night Raw or SmackDown or whatever WWE program you want. And watch how fast the quote-unquote good guy throws a punch or a kick right in front of the referee. But I thought punches and kicks were illegal. And yet the referee there just sort of ignores it. So if there's no rules, then why didn't he just pull out a gun and shoot the guy? And cover them for the pin. One, two, three. If, if rules don't matter, why not pull out all the stops? Because it's a TV show. And, and a bat, poorly produced one at that. So to answer the question, the wrestling business, if there will be a future to the wrestling business the way that we remember it, it must get back to the basics of what wrestling is supposed to be. Uh, there must be wrestling moves, not just backflips and punches and kicks. And it must make sense. A must lead to B, must lead to C. You can't go from A to Z. And they, oh, I forgot B, so I want to go back to B. And then we'll jump forward to U and then back to C. It has to be A, B, C, and D. It has to lead in a sequential fashion that the fans understand and can digest. How many times I've been to a show uh, and see uh, the fans go out and just sort of, or the wrestlers go out, I should say, and they just sort of garble up this hodgepodge of moves and again the athleticism is astounding but there's no rhyme or reason to it it's just here's me doing a backflip here's me diving over the ropes here's me dropping off the 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 roof of the building but there's no rhyme or reason to it and then as soon as i drop off the roof of the building two and a half seconds later i'm kipping up off the mat and jumping off the rope and doing a moonsault uh it doesn't make sense. I'm going A to Z, back to B, forward to U, back to this, forward to that. It has to make sense. So they, again, to answer the question, the business, if there will be a future of professional wrestling, must get back to the basics of what made wrestling what it was and what makes wrestling so special. When done properly, you go back and watch a Harley Race match. You go back and you watch a Ric Flair match. You go back and watch a Bruno San Martino match. You go back and watch any of the greats, Jake Roberts. Uh, it's magic in the ring. And they're working. If you go back and watch those matches, you'll see that they're working far less physically than what the kids today are. And yet they're getting a million times the response. Why? Because they're telling a story. They're bringing psychology. They're selling. They're telling a story. Uh, and if it doesn't get back to that, you're going to see the numbers continue to decline. My, if you look over the last 10 years, and I, this isn't just me spouting off my opinion. If you look at the last 10 years, 10 years ago, the ratings were higher than they were uh, nine years ago. Nine years ago were higher than eight years ago. And subsequently, every year preceding 
has been the exact same. We've seen a decline in the ratings every single year. At this rate, we'll, it's just a matter of time before we hit the, the, the zero zone where there's no fans watching or so few they can't pay the bills. Me, I firmly believe in the tens of millions who've walked away from wrestling, or I should say from sports entertainment, that those fans, and they're now kids and grandkids, are dying to see something different, something that is much more akin to what it is they grew up watching. And the reason that they've left the industry in the first place is because they ain't been given what they love. The question will be, will somebody fill that mandate? Will somebody bring to them what it is they want to see? As of right now, the answer is no. But who knows what tomorrow brings? And just to throw this one little small tidbit out for you, we haven't done this in a while, but just think about this. This week in franchise history, 629.97. Talk about a great time in the business, talk about a better time. Talk about established heels and established faces and different things. I want to mention this. It's an ECW house show at Bar A in Belmar, New Jersey, which is probably right now about 10 to 12 minutes away from me where I am in Asbury Park, the home of Bam and Bigelow. The triple threat of Shane, the aforementioned Bam and Bigelow, and Chris Candido wrestled Chris Chetty, Lance Storm, and Blue Meanie that night. So there's a little This Week in Franchise History for you, Shane. I remember that night. Honestly, God, I remember it very well. Uh, you know, it's like the guys that you mentioned, we, they, they were all like people think of Meanie as a gimmick in the business, right? And mm. you know, I love Brian because, you know, because he had that sort of uh, uh, preconceived notion in the fans' minds. And yet Brian could go out and do a shitload of stuff in the, in the ring that it was so simple. You know, they, they saw him as the lovable, cuddly teddy bear for ECW. He was the, you know, the, the blue meanie and, and all that that brought. And then all you had to do is slip on the banana peel and let meanie hit that, that meanie salt or one of the other, you know, 25 moves that he could do, 50 moves that he could do, uh, and, and explode the crowd. It was telling a story. Uh, you know, for me, I look back at nights like that that, that resonate so clearly in my memory. Uh, and I think of Bam Bam and Chris. And then I think of guys, like you said, uh, Chetty and, and uh, Meanie and Lance Storm. Uh, and going to the ring and thinking to myself, not now, then. Going to the ring then thinking, I can't believe I'm getting paid for this. Because this is so goddamn much fun. <laughs> this is like stealing money. And that's what the wrestling business is supposed to be. It's not supposed to be, oh my God, I got to go out and remember 553 moves in a specific order. And I know at move 397, the camera's going to cut off me and go to this and this and that and the other thing and all the rest. Just go out and work the match. Just go out and do it. It's, I know it sounds condescending and I don't mean to be. But it, honest to God, when done properly, it's as simple as Simon says. Simon says, do a jumping jack. Simon says, swing a chair. Simon says, take a body slam. Simon says, suplex me. It's that simple. And yet, when done properly, if you go back and watch any of those greats I mentioned earlier, it's like watching magic. 
You know, when you watch those matches, I can watch them today, even though I've seen them 150 times. I can watch those matches of the guys I mentioned earlier and be spellbound, mesmerized by what I'm watching. I know what they're going to do. I've seen it 150 times. And yet it's still goddamn compelling and goddamn entertaining to watch. That's professional wrestling when done properly. 100% agree. And that's how we're going to end it right here. That was a quite poignant way to uh, cap off uh, a very good Ask Franchise Anything question sent in for this week. And if you want to get in on the action and you want to send in your question, please do so by emailing thetriplethreatpod at gmail.com. Again, it's thetriplethreatpod at gmail.com. And if you don't recall from earlier in the show, next week's episode will be covering CyberSlam 1996 as well as Shane's feud with Brian Pillman. If you did not catch it, review it this week while we uh, get our stuff together. But go back and watch it. You can that's available on the network or on YouTube or however you want to find uh, your video source here in uh, this great year of 2018. And check out uh, the intensity of Shane and Brian Pillman and some of the things Brian Pillman had to say. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, say the least, right? Intensity. <laughs> uh, I got, I'm got. i going to save it for next week, but I got a great line for you about uh, one of the – one of your interactions with Brian, I have a great observation, but I'll save it for for next week. It's uh, it's the one. That, it's definitely the one I wanted to win, and I know John was the same way. That was the one we wanted. So uh, the the triple threat podcast listeners have spoken. So this is hopefully the first of many times we will do this. I really enjoyed the interaction, uh, and thank you again to everybody for the response for the episode with Francine, our one year anniversary show. And uh, please, if you have anything else, reach out to us on Twitter at Two Man Power Trip and at the Franchise SD. If you want to access any of the franchise merchandise, please head over to ProWrestlingTees.com slash Franchise SD to get the official Shane Douglas t-shirt line that is a part of the Pro Wrestling Tees empire, as well as head over to WrestlingSuperstore.com and get the first franchise Shane Douglas action figure in almost 20 years, about 18 years since we've seen a franchise action figure. And it's out there now on WrestlingSuperstore.com. It is unbelievably awesome. So pick up yours today. And Shane, I know you got a big weekend coming this weekend down in Knoxville at the Fanboy Convention with Francine. Hopefully talking very good about your uh, your buddies, Chad and JP. But Shane, what do you have going on at this fanboy convention in Knoxville and any other details you have for us uh, and the listeners of the Triple Threat Podcast? Well, look, first of all, thank you to everybody for the first 52 episodes. and hope you enjoy number 53. Uh, Francine and I will be making our first appearance at the uh, Knoxville Fanboy Convention, uh, Fanboy Expo, I should say, uh, this Friday and Saturday. Friday will be there from noon to 5, Saturday from 10 a.m. to 5. So if you're in the area, please come by and say hello. This will be the first time that Francine and I have made a, uh, a dual appearance uh, together uh, in over 11 years. It, it's been, you know, since 2007 was the last time. So uh, God knows how, how long it'll be to the next time. So if you're in the area, please come on and, and, and check us out, say hello. Uh, come tell us some stories, listen to some stories. We're having a great time this weekend. But as far as uh, uh, this week, uh, for me, it's sort of bittersweet because, again, we're coming off the uh, you know our big 52 episodes and 
uh, first anniversary. I said last week, I don't get many of those just this time in my life, but uh, sort of bittersweet because of the passing of a good friend. So uh, if I could just close it out instead of the usual way of me, you know, going into the, to, to the franchise diatribe, I'll just leave with the fans with this. Who's the man? <laughs>